a lot of what we do as attorneys is to depersonalize the emotion of the investment. Objectively, we're able to explain to the attorney who then passed it on to the seller that we're willing to work with them and you know move forward. Today, we welcome Christian Bruno. He is a transactional attorney practicing the areas of real estate, real estate finance, and general corporate business law. Christian handles all aspects of commercial real estate and finance transactions, including acquisitions, leasing developments, joint ventures, restructurings, note purchases, and fund formations in Florida and throughout the United States. We will also discuss how an attorney can help you in investing in real estate, plus when to contact one. We will also talk about the most common mistakes investors make, plus how to look at liabilities. Now, finally, Christian will share a special nuggets about a multifamily transaction he just did recently. All this and much more up next. Real estate investing is changing, but there are people evolving and thriving. In this podcast, we'll listen to their stories and hopefully learn from them. I am dedicated to creating a life where I can create multiple passive income and doing something I love along the way. To me, the most important part is doing significant work and create great relationships along the way. For those that want to invest in passive income multifamilies, email me at abio@abiobiestados.com. My name is Abio Biestados. I am a real estate investor and entrepreneur, and I want to help you live the real estate life. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast. Well, Christian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Abio. Pleasure to speak with you again. Yeah, Christian. So I, I want the listeners to get a quick background of of what you do and, and how you got into law. Just kind of sure. give us a little background about that. Yeah. So I've been a, um, a an attorney for over twenty years and have been pr- uh, specializing primarily in the areas of real estate and real estate finance for over fifteen years. I started my career in um, in Philadelphia, actually doing a lot of uh, lender real estate lender representation for. Uh, large real estate investment trusts and financial institutions. And when I moved down to Miami, I eventually uh, migrated towards being on the borrower and developer side, representing a lot of uh, clients such as yourself who, you know, who invest in multifamily in particular, but also um, in other asset classes such as hospitality, retail, uh, office. Um, but the primary area that, you know, we've inv- that I've worked with, worked in over the last 15 years has definitely been multifamily. Probably been involved in you know well over a hundred transactions, and if you include all the refinances, easily over two hundred. Now, for for those in the business, that that's a lot. And uh, when, when you participate on the finance side, you get to see another aspect of the deal. A lot of buyers and sellers don't get to see the back door. Uh, right. What is what it is to work with a with a lender directly, and what they right. what they look at, and how they underwrite deals. So, That's right. uh, you know, I, for an investor that wants to get into real estate investing, and for those that are already involved in, in multifamilies investing, you know, when should they contact an attorney like you? Because I, you know, I, I see, yeah. I, I won't say I see, I've, I've made those mistakes in the past. That, yeah. You know, but by the time I reach out to to an attorney for advice, it might be too late. So what, yeah. what suggestion do you give investors? Yeah, definitely. That's very common, um, especially um, early on in, a, in the life cycle of a, of a particular company or group. Definitely before you enter into a contract, you should definitely uh, hire, contact an attorney and you know, discuss the deal and, and really engage an attorney to negotiate the contract. Because you know, really the purchase contract is the roadmap for the entire deal. 
you're going to have a diligence period uh, where you can cancel the contract. But, it, you know, it, 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 a seller never really likes to retrade a deal during a diligence period uh, if there's already been uh, a handshake, you know, a terms agreed upon on a handshake or on a letter of credit. Um, the most practical way of approaching a deal between a buyer and a seller is through an LOI, which is non-binding. And so many uh, sophisticated investors such as yourself who's been doing this a long time, you can handle a letter, uh, a letter of intent uh, on your own. But, uh, you know, like, just like retrading the deal during the uh, diligence period, it, it kind of looks a little bad if you try to retrade a deal after signing a, a non-binding letter of intent. So typically what I see is I see our clients come to us when they're uh, in the negotiation stages of an LOI. Even though it is non-binding, that's usually when most of our clients reach out to us, certainly before purchase contract. You know, you know the, the non-binding LOI is exactly, I just want to emphasize on that, non-binding. You right. know, there's a lot of, lot of investors that come into the business and they think that LOI is going to bind the deal together. Right. And, um, you know, I, I've been in those transactions where that, that binding, just that LOI didn't, didn't didn't help out. Somebody else comes in, could take the deal from you. Well, well, yeah. so that's that's a great point. And one of the things that that I, that we do with our LOIs is that there is a binding aspect of an LOI that is exclusivity. So when you sign the LOI, you have the seller you have the seller obligate themselves to not talk to anybody for whatever it is, 10, 20 days, whatever gives you comfort sufficient to get to a purchase group. You know what? That's interesting. I've I've never heard that one. That's you just, typically you just taught me on that one. Yeah, at, at, at our, you know, for our clients, for the deals that we do, that's pretty standard. Is even though the LOI is, you know, there's no obligation with respect to how the deal for the purchase of the apartment building is going to go. The exclusivity of it uh, is binding, and that is, you know, you, you could, in theory, uh, go after someone who has uh, violated an exclusivity provision. Not some seller; they might not be willing to give it. Of course. But generally speaking, you know, if you want to keep the ball rolling, they will give it if they want. If they want yeah. to, have, if they think you're the right buyer for their property. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, the, it, let's just to be real. There, there is a lot of attorneys, and it's a very competitive market in your industry. Right. And uh, you know what? What I found is that building the relationship with the attorney is just as important as a partnership that you would do a joint venture deal on a, yeah. on a property. Um, yeah. and it's, it's a relationship that attorneys and investors need to build over time. Cause you kind of learn how to work with each other. You see their habits, you see, you know, you kind of learn their business sometimes as an investor, as an attorney, it takes a while for them to really understand your, the, I, the things that really are important to you as an investor. Right. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, that, and that takes time with relationships. So I always, uh, me personally, I don't like to jump around from attorney to attorney and find, yeah, I, I like to build that relationship because it takes time for you to understand, you know what, ABO, I kind of know what you like, your pitfalls, and you got a pitfall coming here. I, I know right. that your deals that you like to look at are like this. You got to be careful with this. And that comes through a relationship. So, yeah. you know, my, my advice to listeners is to, you know, give it some time, you know, not, don't make it just a one deal you know, build that relationship over and over. And, um, that, that's really helped me out in, in my career. It's something that decision that we've made recently, you know, just let's, let's figure this out with this attorney, let's hash it out 
and um, we'll start growing our relationship and get to know our habits. Um, right. During the selling and buying of a real estate asset, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of mistakes and there's a lot of ways too that an investor could save or lose a lot of money. What are the most mm-hmm. common pitfalls that you see investors make in a transaction? Well, I mean, as far as save, you know, saving money goes, uh, that that's you know, pretty standard across the board here in Florida, uh, where you could have, if you have an attorney who is also a title agent, you can kill two birds with one stone, save some, uh, and, and if you control title and deal, you can save uh, money that you would have otherwise not, uh, that you would have spent on a third party title agent. So that's, you know, that's um, Florida real estate transactions 101. So that's certainly something you can discuss with an attorney. You know, what sort of arrangement can you make? And, and that and in almost every circumstance, uh, your attorney is going to work with you on that, depending upon the size of the deal, et cetera. Um, the other one is, you know, with with um, with any refinance of a property, you know, Florida has very unique mortgage taxes and mm-hmm. they, you know, and, and a lot of those a lot of those mortgage taxes can be easily in most cases avoided on a straight refinance, not on a, not on a on a purchase finance, but on a refinance. You know, you really shouldn't be paying mortgage taxes um, for no reason on on a on a straight up refinance up to the amount that you're that you're you know, of the debt that you're taking out. That is generally exempt. Uh, but that's yeah. something that you need an attorney uh, to modify the loan, the loan documentation, et cetera, so that you can you know, save that money. But I've had you know, I've had investors come, you know, from New York, California, other states. They had no idea about that. And they almost went forward on, a, you know, on forward on a, on a refinance of an apartment building. that was one of 100, uh, you know, properties in a portfolio. And they were about to, you know, uh, you know pay an extra $150,000 in mortgage taxes that they really didn't need to at all. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good advice. Uh, that, that's why you got to work with the guys that have experience locally in the state. Uh, I, I agree with you on that one. Is there, is there uh, you know, some, something that you've seen investors overlook in a transaction where, you, where they, could be, they could find themselves with a big liability? Uh, is there some, any one or two items that you could point out to us that, you know, things that we should look out for? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for for somebody who's getting into this for the first time with respect to how much liability um, they may be exposing themselves to, the, the, the most the most basic one is uh, to form an SPE for every single investment that you have. It sounds very straightforward. Maybe it's very basic for, you know, for a lot of people, but it, you'd be surprised how many times I see a deal come in where it might have, it might be owned by an individual or it might be owned by a, a, a company, you know, a company who they happen to own real estate uh, or somewhere down the line, one of the principals just put the, you know, an apartment building in the name of, in the name of the company that is an ongoing entity worth millions of dollars. And we actually have that, had that situation last year. And so, you know, for, a whole host of reasons you want to avail yourselves of the limited liability laws in the state of Florida and form an LLC or in some cases, some other variation of an LLC for every single investment you make. And that's going to protect you to a large degree. Um, the other one that, you know, that I often see particularly for starter deals is uh, when you're going out there and you're raising money uh, and you have to be careful 
when you raise money that um, if, if you're not, if you don't have commitments from friends and family or business partners who you've done dealings with before who are in the deal on day one, you could be, you could be uh, subjecting yourselves to securities law, which is separate and apart from, you know, real estate law. I, I participate in, in some of the securities laws and you know, we have a, a corporate department that handles the bulk of those, but you, you definitely want to make sure that you, that if you are out there asking for money, that, that you comply with the appropriate securities laws and do the, you know, do the disclosures and have the paperwork. Otherwise you could have significant exposure vis-a-vis your partners if the deal goes bad. I mean, Christian, that, that would la- that last advice, you know, people take for granted. Right. <laughs> I, I, I could say, I, I can't say percentages, but most deals get raised without anyone considering those securities right. laws sure. until uh, reality right. hits yeah. them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's all, it's all, you know, it's all fine. If you look at if, 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 if a deal turns out great and everybody's making money and getting their distributions, then, you know, nobody's going to bat an eye, but it's that one bad deal that happens because of COVID or because of, uh, you know, a tornado or whatever that uh, it just takes that one deal and a relationship that, you know, can go sour and they go see a lawyer and they say, well, where's the, you know, offering documents that you signed when you, you know, gave them the money. And they're like, what offering, you know? And so, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. it's, it can be cumbersome, um, but you know, it, and it can be, it can be painful, especially on the first one. But once you've gone through that first one, then, you know, you can always re- you know, repeat that and, and use that as a template going forward, assuming you have the same type of structure and you're using the same. Um, yeah, that, yeah. To, to put together one of those offering memorandums, it, it it is it is a task, you right. know. Especially if you're operating, you're raising money. It is a challenge for syndicators and investors to particip- to put all that together. Right. You know, and, and I'd say that from my own personal experience, that it, it is a team effort. So I agree, and it discourages a lot of investors because of that. And I see right. investors; they don't ask, uh, you know. They don't, they don't ask their investors, you know, where are they financially? What type of investors are they? Are they accredited? No one asks that because those are really key factors, man. So, exactly. you know, I want listeners to really, really pay attention to that because that is really good advice and it's, and it's taken for granted a lot. You know, Christian, um, I know we were talking about a deal and you just gave me a quick right. little rundown about that deal, but immediately I, I loved the way that deal was structured because right. um, I found it very creative. And I wouldn't mind if I had structured some of my deals that way because it just makes <laughs> right. this, it make it makes the seller, you know, that you know, one of the things that happens a lot in as a buyer, I'm buying deals all the time. Is I'm not going to say all sellers are liars, but uh, you know, you, you buy these deals and you think there's a certain percentage of units that are producing or making money or renting, and then when you get into the deal right. and you close, you know you lose 20, 30% of your tenants. You're like, what happened here? How did this happen? And give right. us a little bit of how you created, tell us about this deal. Yeah. So, so it was, um, it was a, uh, a multifamily complex deal. So it was more than one building. Um, and it was a significant amount of money, but there was a, there was a, a long time period between the time the purchase contract was signed and when closing was set to occur for it took, you know, diligence was going to take 90 days and whatnot. Um, just generally because it was a lot of property. It was a big property. And um, and during that during that diligence phase, co- you know, COVID hit. 
and there was you know significant concern. So in order for the deal to go forward, there were lease up there were lease up requirements that were imposed in order to close the deal, and it was it was you know it was difficult to estimate, but basically you know we had to match the the percentage of tenants that were going to be in place. Uh, in order to make the deal work. And, and a lot of that was also driven by the lender requirements. Was it right? Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac on that? It was Freddie Mac on that one. Freddie Mac, Freddie oh Mac. yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so the, you know, we, we had to make sure that we, that we hit those numbers in order to close. Well, you know, come, you know, circle towards, you know, we get past diligence and we get, you know, we approach the closing date and the lease up requirement just wasn't there. They weren't quite there. And, you know, the buyer could have, you know, could have walked away. But, you know, fortunately, um, cooler heads prevailed uh, amongst the, you know, the buyer, the seller and the lender, et cetera. I mean, there was, you know, it was a lot of back and forth and lawyering going on and that sort of thing. But ultimately, what we did in order for the deal to move forward was create a holdback structure uh, so that a portion of the purchase price was set aside uh, in order to. In, in order to uh, fill the gap of the of the lease up requirements that had not yet been met, the lender was on I board. Love that. that. I right? love that. So a, a portion <laughs> of the purchase price was held back, and then if if the if those apartments, you know, COVID came around and those apartments were then leased up, then by by a date certain, and there were, and there were different tranches, then a certain amount would be released to the seller. But if they weren't, then they'd go back to the buyers. Essentially, a reduction on the. That's a great structure, man. Because it just, it just, it's a, it motivates. I mean, basically, the seller's doing a lot of this work for you. You know, they're they're doing right. a that because, you would have to do anyways after you close. It's right, because you, you, you had you had you had a development. You know, the development seller. You know, who they they had they had created the property and they had been running it, but they were ready to you know sell it to an institutional, well, a private equity investor. It wasn't really institutional, but a private equity fund. That was, you know, paying the premium dollars, and, and you know, essentially for a turnkey property leased up. Correct. They weren't Correct. getting what they paid for, so you know, we had to we had to modify it so that effectively they would. That is a sweet deal. That's a that's a good structure. I, I like that one, and it's the, and that is for more of a, of a stable product. It's not a distressed property. It's just the, the right. seller was wanted to sell, but he just wasn't there yet, and COVID put a hiccup on 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 his business plan, but he's still found a buyer. Um, was there any mistakes that on that transactions that you said that could have probably made it a little bit smoother that someone could learn how to do this and not make the same mistakes? Well, you know, on that particular transaction, you know, I, I think that, uh, we were able to identify that we were able to identify the issue prior to the end of diligence so that we were able to, to modify, you know, we were able to modify, uh, n- not really a mistake, but just kind of the circumstance in which we were in. So I, th- I think that, you know, initially, you know, the challenge was initially the, the seller and their attorney kind of overreacted a bit. Um, and, you know, we were just able to, uh, you know, calmly depersonalize it, which a lot of what we do as attorneys is to depersonalize um you know, the, the emotion of the investment, uh, we're a little bit separated from the emotion of it. And we depersonalized it and just objectively were able to explain to the attorney who then passed it on to the seller, you know, that we can, you know, we we're willing to work with them 
and you know move forward. So maybe the mistake was you know, a little overreaction initially, a little bit of you know uh, people yeah, the, were upset, but. The, 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 I like that you mentioned that uh, depersonalized because a lot of times uh, buyers and sellers, they have huge egos. So right. that, that gets in the way of a transaction. And, you know, there's been many times that I want to talk directly to the seller or to the buyer. Let me talk to him. Let me talk to him. Sometimes that's not the best thing. <laughs> no, that's usually the worst time. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, I, I've been in that position. I'm like, okay, let me, let me just, I think I can just resolve this myself. And then yeah. when you end up doing this, you might make the situation worse. You know, let the experts be the filter, let them do their thing. Um, and it usually prevails. Um, so I agree with you that the person, that's, that's definitely very important when a good attorney does that for their client. That's, that's what the, that's a really important, important part of their role. Yeah. Uh, Christian, I mean, you gave us great information here. Um, I, I always like to end the, the, the show with the, with a with a question. And I, and I love it cause it's always different with everyone in every different type of business. And you know, it's, you know, what is, you know, I know you gave us advice, but I also want to know what does financial freedom mean to you? Yeah, that is an interesting question and it is different for everybody, but you know, for me, uh, it's, it's being able to do, you know, what you love for a living. Uh, and I've been doing this, you know, 20 years now, and I'm fortunate enough to, you know, to do something that I love and that I enjoy during the time. And it doesn't affect, you know, how I live my life, being able to do the things that I like to do outside of work, you know, traveling, spending time with family, get a little golf in there, you know? So for me, that's, that's financial freedom, you know, but yeah, that's it, enough. It, that's, that's awesome. That's, man. Yeah. That's, that's a hell yeah. of a question. Yeah. You've been at it 20 years. So you definitely look like you love what you're doing. I do. I do. Very, yeah. very, very fortunate. Very fortunate. Christian, how can the listeners get, uh, reach out to you? Can you, uh, give them your information and I'll also drop it in a link, but I would like to hear sure. from you. Sure. Uh, they can reach out to me at, uh, C Bruno at Cozen.com. C O Z E N. Uh, or they can just Google me at, uh, you know, Cozen, Cozen Christian Bruno, and I'll, I'll pop up. I'll be the first one to pop up. Uh, and all my contact information is on the website. Yeah. And I'll leave that for the folks. I'll put the link in. Christian, thank you for your time. I appreciate it, man. It was great information you gave us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Life Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to reach out to me, please go to my website, www.ablbiesteros.com.